Hear now the word of our Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bug and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eager, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper. Instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. This is the word of God. May it find its way into our hearts and lives this morning by the power of his Holy Spirit. Amen. So I had my first Bible study Wednesday night. That's not my first Bible study. I've been going to Bible studies for as long as I can remember and leading them probably my entire adult life. But I went to my first Bible study here as your pastor. And to be honest, I was pretty psyched. I was excited to get out and meet people and begin having those holy conversations that make me love church so much. I love church so much. I work at three of them. Um, to be honest, I really wasn't planning on leading. Uh, I figured you all were probably in the middle of a study and I would get to participate for a while, kind of get my feet wet. But when I got there, I was surprised to learn that the group had just wrapped up the book of Jude and they were ready to start a new book with me as the teacher. And I panicked a little. I hadn't really prepared anything. I wasn't sure I was going to be able to do a study cold. And the panic only increased as the group told me that they had been studying the books at the end of the Bible. They'd done James, both Peters, all three Johns, and they just finished Jude. In my mind, I knew what was next. Revelation. And I was thinking, please, God, don't make me have to teach Revelation. I've only been a pastor for four days. I don't know what any of that stuff means. Up until college, I thought the rapture was one of the dinosaurs from Jurassic Park. I should not be leading a study on Revelation. But the group said we did Revelation a while ago. So I played it cool and I casually suggested, why don't we do the Gospel of Matthew? And the group agrees. So we read the first two chapters of Matthew. Everything's going great. I'm giving these little insights. Um, I'm asking probing questions. It's great. You should join us. Until I'm knocked off my game a little by a question I wasn't quite anticipating. See, we're talking about the birth of Jesus, and someone asked, did the people expect Jesus to be born of a virgin? I didn't know the answer to the question. I'd never even really thought about it. So I did what all great pastors do when they're confronted with a question they can't answer. I made something up. kind of kidding. Um, So I gave it my best shot. I can't even remember what my answer was, but it got us to the next conversation, so it must have been all right. But the question stuck with me. Like all really good questions, it it got its hooks in me and refused to leave me alone. The more I thought about this question, did the Jewish people expect Jesus to be born of a virgin, the more I realized my problem. 
See, I realized I couldn't answer the question because I read Old Testament prophecy totally differently than the people who first read it or heard it proclaimed. See, when I read the passage in Isaiah that says, And a virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, I already know what Isaiah is talking about. 2,000 years of Christian tradition has taken every element of surprise out of that text for me. Every last little bit of mystery. I already know the answer. The son is Jesus. The woman is Mary. Emmanuel means God with us. Next passage, please. Reading prophecy is so hard for us these days because it's so easy. We don't have to grapple with any mysteries or solve any riddles. The answers are right there in the Gospels. When we read in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him, and by His wounds we are healed. We go, Jesus on the cross. Got it. Check. Next prophecy, please. See, we don't have to spend time grappling with the identity of the suffering servant in this passage. We've lost our sense of what was originally baffling and bewildering about those words. We've lost our sense of the overwhelming mystery. It's so hard for us because it's so easy. And so I have no idea what the Jewish people expected because I'm so divorced from their experience of prophecy. I can't give an answer to a simple question at Bible study. See, too often, I think I approach the prophetic books the way I used to approach algebra. I've always hated math, like with a passion. I was just never any good at it. I mean, I can do basic arithmetic, like 6 plus 7 equals 14. But outside of that, I got nothing. I especially hated algebra. Numbers I understood. Numbers I was getting the hang of. Then one day, out of the blue, they start using all these letters in math class. And they won't tell you what the letters mean. And they always mean something different. You finally figure out what X is, and then tomorrow they make it something else. Or worse, they start asking you what Y is. Why? Well, one day in my ninth grade algebra class, I had a huge breakthrough. See, I made this amazing discovery of our algebra textbook. Some idiot actually put the answers in the back of the book. I couldn't believe it. All this time, I've been slaving away like a serf trying to figure out what X equals. And it was in the back of the book all along. Needless to say, that night, I finished my algebra homework in like five minutes. The next day, I turned again. I was so proud of myself. I I knew beyond the shadow of a doubt I had all the questions right. The day after that, my math teacher asked me to stay after the bell. And it was not to congratulate me on my dramatic improvement. My algebra teacher, Coach LeMaster, handed me my paperback with bright red letters on it that said, Show your work. He saw right through me. He told me, Son, I know the answers are in the back of the book, but they're back there so you can check your work. You still have to do the hard work of solving the questions or else you're not going to learn anything. Well, the same is true, I think, of the book of Isaiah. Yes, all the answers are in the back of the book, but if we just flip ahead to the New Testament and look up the answers, we're going to miss something crucial. See, this work, 
this, this wrestling, this, this prayerful search that takes place between the question and the answer, that's where we grow. That's where we're made holy. So how do we read this morning's passage from the 55th chapter of Isaiah? As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bug and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eager, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy. You will be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper. Instead of the briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, an everlasting sign that will endure forever. It's easy if we just flip to the back of the book. This passage about the Jewish people's return from exile. God keeps his promises. Problem solved. Next passage, please. But not so fast. Let's show our work. See, I believe that the single greatest tool God gave us to interpret Scripture is our imagination. Guided by the Holy Spirit. There's a great little story in the Talmud, and it, a rabbi named Eliezer tells his students, if a person really wants to understand a word of Scripture, they must be willing to totally inhabit that word of Scripture. One of his students, kind of being a wiseacre, says to the rabbi, but rabbi, how can we inhabit a word of Scripture? Surely we can't make ourselves so small as to fit in a single word. Then the rabbi smiles and he says to the student, I was not talking of people who are bigger than words. Friends, you and I are not bigger than the words of Scripture. We cannot simply hover over this morning's passage with all the answers in hand. We must inhabit these words together. To understand this morning's passage, we must use our imaginations to put ourselves in the shoes of the first people who heard it. What was that person like? Who was that person? How did they feel to be told, my ways are higher than your ways? What did they make of the promise that God's word does not return to him empty? Why did they need to hear that the mountains will burst into song and the trees of the field will clap their hands? Um, today we're not going to do the typical three points in a poem. We passed that exit a while back when I was talking about algebra. That's the easy part anyway, to sort of spoon figure these uh, couple of biblical truths from this passage. Today, instead of skipping ahead to the answers, I think we should show our work. Today, I simply want us to imagine ourselves in the place of the person who originally heard this passage so that we can inhabit this word of Scripture together. Let's enter into their heart and mind, see the world from their eyes. The year is 560 B.C. 
You belong to a community in exile. You are a stranger in a strange land, a Jew living in Babylon. You've lived in Babylon for 20 years now. In many ways, you've grown accustomed to the rough and tumble of city life and the largest empire in the history of the world. But you're old enough that you still remember a simpler time. If you close your eyes, you can see Mount Zion where the temple of God stood. You remember the siege like it was yesterday. It was awful. It lasted over two years. The Babylonian army was camped outside the walls of Jerusalem and they let no one in or out. No supplies, no food, nothing. You remember the starvation and hunger during those days. You remember the stench of rubbish piling inside the walls, the sickness. You remember the pleas for help, the daily funerals, and towards the end, the cannibalism. Like yesterday, you remember the fateful day in the summer of 587 when Nebuchadnezzar finally broke through the walls and the people were too tired and beat down to put up a fight. When you close your eyes at night, you can still hear the clang of swords and the screams. See, as a boy, you were told of the promise the Lord made to King David in 1 Chronicles. He said, When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. One of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will establish his throne forever. The promise that the lying of David would rule over Judah forever had brought your people comfort and pride. So it was a devastating blow when the last Davidic king, Zedekiah, was forced to watch his son slain before him, before having his eyes blinded and being led off in chains to Babylon. But it was a time of many devastating blows, too many to count. You can still smell the smoke. Feel the heat of the fire from when they raised Jerusalem to the ground. You still feel your pulse quickening and your blood boil when you remember how your neighbors, the Edomite, cheered the destruction and how they joined in the looting. You remember like yesterday when your family and you were led away in chains. How the babies too small to make the journey were euthanized. You remember looking over your shoulder at Mount Zion for probably the last time, seeing the smoldering remains of the temple that you were once told housed the God of the universe and wondering, was he ever there to begin with? Maybe it was you who in a moment of deep sorrow wrote the words of the 137th Psalm. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked for us songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy and said, Sing us the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. 
Perhaps it was you who recalled the bitterness and anger you felt on that day when you wrote, Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did. On the day that Jerusalem fell, tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Who dashes, who seizes your infants' heads and dashes them against the rocks. But now, now, 20 years later, your kids don't even speak Hebrew. They have no memory of the temple or the songs of the Lord. They've given their babies Babylonian names. And after all, why shouldn't they? The temple is gone. God is silent. Jerusalem is only a fading memory. This is the new reality. This is the new normal. Centuries ago, when the Assyrians invaded the northern kingdom and led the Israelites off into captivity, they were never seen or heard from again. Why should our story be any different? One might be tempted to call your state defeat or despair. But that isn't quite true. Because you're still trying. You're still clinging to something. You see, you and your neighbors, those that remember the old ways, you've been meeting in secret along the banks of the Euphrates River. Once a week on the Sabbath. This would be the beginning of the synagogue system, but you don't know that. You also don't know that the scrolls that the scribes are reading from at these gatherings, these collections of all your stories and law books and poetries that they're weaving into one long narrative to instruct the next generation and keep them from, getting, from forgetting who they are. You don't know that this will become the Bible. You don't know any of that. You simply show up. You go through the motions. But you stand in the back and you never join in the singing. It all just feels so empty. Last week was a little different, though. The man who spoke to the assembly last week was none other than the prophet Isaiah. He stood before the congregation as if reading a letter from an old friend. He spoke on behalf of the Lord, just like the old days. His voice and God's voice mysteriously melting into one thing as he reads the words. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. As the rain and snow come down from heavens and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish. So they yield seed for the sower and bread for the eager. So is my word that goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty. But will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy. And be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper. And instead of the briars the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown. For an everlasting sign that will endure forever. When you first hear these words, 
At first you're skeptical. But then as he continues, you begin to think. This is Isaiah. The Isaiah. This is the man who stood before us and warned us that all of this would happen. How foolish we were not to listen to him then. Perhaps we, we would be wise to listen to him now. And as the old prophet begins to paint a picture of a new future, one of jubilation, one where the fortunes of Israel are restored and all of nature joins in the celebration. By the time he gets to the part about the mountains bursting into song and the trees of the field clapping their hands, you feel something inside of you, something you've not felt in a long time, something that maybe never left. It's not overwhelming. But it is unmistakable. It's, it's like a single burning ember in the ashes of your heart that is now being fanned by the very word of God. It's that thing they call hope. And you're not quite sure what to do with it. You're not quite ready to give in to it. Later that week, you're still thinking about the words, puzzling over them. You don't quite get what they all mean, but you know they've rekindled something inside of you. You notice it in your neighbors, too. You all have conversations about it at night. What did Isaiah mean when he said the word of God is like rain, someone asks. Someone else answers. I think it's like how when the rain first falls, we don't see the results. But if we're patient and we wait, we begin to see those first bright green shoots. Then one day comes the harvest. Maybe God's promise is like that. Maybe we just need to be patient. And someone else says, you know, years ago I heard Isaiah prophesy. And he talked about a vineyard and how, how a vineyard was going to be laid waste and, and thorns and briars were going to replace the green vines. We didn't know it then, but he was talking about Jerusalem. Now he says that great trees will grow where the briars and thorns now grow. He must be talking about Jerusalem again. Yes, someone says that's exactly it. He's saying that God will continue to remain faithful to his people and that all of this will be reversed, but we must be patient. And so they go on and on, discussing the fresh new words of prophecy. And you smile never contributing to the conversation. Just listening to the people ramble on and on, discussing what this or that prophecy means. It kind of reminds you of the old days. But you're not ready to join in just yet. Then one morning, you're out in your yard working and you can't help it. You're thinking about that prophecy the part that really sticks with you, the part that dances around in your head, are the words, you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. See, you remember going out from Jerusalem in sorrow and being led forth by violence. You remember how the whole earth seemed to mourn that day, how the very hills seemed to be weeping, how the trees seemed to be bowing their heads as you left Jerusalem. 
And now Isaiah says you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you and the trees of the field will clap their hands. Is it really possible? Part of you wants to believe, needs to believe. You need to know that maybe God is bigger than the temple that used to house him and that he is at work here, even in Babylon, even now, like the rain working mysteriously beneath the ground. But part of you is afraid to believe, afraid to let that hope take over. It might mean being hurt all over again. You've kind of learned to live with the disappointment the crushing blow. Can you really do it again if this prophecy turns out to be empty? But my word will not return to me empty. That's what he says. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bug and flourish, so we're making seed for the sower and bread for the eager. So if my word goes out from my mouth, it will not return to me empty. And you do something amazing. Something you've not done since the early days of the siege. You pray. You say, Lord, give me the faith to believe in your promises. Help me to keep believing that your word will never come back empty even in this darkness and uncertainty, even right now when things seem hopeless. Help me to believe that. Help me to trust that. Put my faith in that. Renew in me the faith I once had as a child and help me to never lose it. Help me to anxiously await the fulfillment of your promises and to teach my children to do the same. Please give me the strength to hope again. Amen. And then something amazing happens. For the first time in over 20 years, you begin to sing. It's Psalm 71, but you don't call it that. It's just one of the songs of Zion you heard growing up. I will praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, my God. I will sing praise to you with the lyre, Holy One of Israel. When I sing praise to you, I, whom you have delivered. And as you sing those words, you mean them. They are your prayer to a God that is faithful and listening. And something breaks in you and you begin to cry. And you surrender. And you feel the joy of his presence wash over you once again. And you keep on singing. And as you look out in the distance, just for a moment, you could almost swear that the mountains are singing with you and that the trees of the field are clapping their hands. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.